Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Pots of the People. In this episode, we have me, Clint, and Sam. Brittany's not with us this week because she was traveling, but you know that Brittany Spear is always in the pod, so in a way, she is still here. Uh, she'll be back next week, and then I'm joined by Jonathan Metzl, author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racialism is Killing America's Heartland. A lot of people told me, yeah, I know that I'm getting hurt by my politics, but I care about a bigger thing, which is blocking abortion or building a wall or something like that. Now, the word for this week is that, you know, I'm really sensitive about sort of feeling like I owe people things around me, like whether it's my time or my energy or words or whatever. Uh, and I just realized recently, like in the past couple of days, that I'm so much more thoughtful about owing everybody something and I'm not very thoughtful about what I owe myself. And I really had to own in this last like 48, 72 hours, like that I owe myself some things and I'm just starting to acknowledge that. So my word to you this week is think about all the things you owe yourself and are you following through on those commitments? Let's go. This is the news. This is not Brittany Packnett. This is Clint at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre at Duray, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So Brittany's not here this week. If she were here, I know that she would want to talk about the passing of a literary giant, an icon, in my opinion, the greatest American writer of all time, a person who not only changed the landscape of American literature, a person who changed the landscape of America, and that is Toni Morrison. So Toni Morrison left us last week at the age of 88. She won the Nobel Prize in literature in 1993, becoming the first African-American woman, I believe the first African-American person to win the Nobel Prize for literature. She is the author of almost a dozen novels, uh, pieces of nonfiction, a remarkable editor. A lot of people forget that she was an editor. She edited so many incredible Black authors during her time at Random House. And I wrote a piece for The New Republic last week that was sort of a tribute to her. And I was really reflecting on what it meant to have been alive at the same time as this literary giant. Uh, I actually got the chance to see Toni Morrison speak in person and during a series of lectures she did at Harvard in 2016. I was just so grateful that I got to see this person in front of me. I got to hear her voice. I got to be in the same room as her laugh. And it's something that I, that will stay with me for the rest of my life. And I'm grateful that she got to experience a lot of the love that she deserved and a lot of the adulation that she deserved while she was alive, which isn't the case for all of our artists and writers. Obviously sad to see her go, but what a legacy and what a life. I started reading Toni Morrison late. You know, I think in some ways I wasn't really a reader until college. Like I didn't know that I didn't know what reading was until I actually did it. In a college setting, I was like, wow, this is what text can do. But I will say it wasn't until reading Toni Morrison that I understood like the power of words. And specifically it was, I read Beloved. I'll never forget reading Beloved. And it was so lyrical. And I was like, I just didn't know books could do this. I knew sentences could be special because I had read a lot of beautiful sentences before, but I hadn't 
read a book that could be lyrical until I read Beloved. And I remember the hardest book I ever read in my entire life was Paradise. I remember reading Paradise and being like, this is work. Like Tony made you work. It was not a breeze, but it was work that was deserving of uh, her time. And, you know, I learned so much about what it meant to actually be a reader because of her text. I also say like really inspired by the career trajectory she had, you know, she had a whole career as an editor and then decided she was going to write. And it makes me think about people like Ava, right? Who like Ava had a whole career as like a PR professional, you know, and then said, I'm actually going to be a director. It like reminds you that when you find your gift, no matter when that is, like you should walk towards that gift. And Tony to me is like that reminder of what it means to walk towards your gift when you find it. So one of the things uh, that was fascinating was reading and rereading her essay from 2016, right after the election, called Making America White Again. So there's a quote here. I'm just going to quote from her writing. It says, So scary are the consequences of a collapse of white privilege that many Americans have flocked to a political platform that supports and translates violence against the defenseless as strength. And... You know, I just sat with that quote for a while because, you know, after seeing not one but two mass shootings successively and all of what we've seen under now almost three years of this administration, I think going back and reading over in her writing the impact that this election actually meant, what it meant for what was to come in terms of violence, in terms of white identity, and how that was becoming even more dangerous, even more radicalized, even more translated into much of what we've been covering, what we've been talking about, and what we've seen in this country over the past two and a half years. It was really prescient, and Toni Morrison will definitely be missed. Just a side note, I didn't read the book Beloved. I do remember when the movie came out in 1998. I was only eight years old. And I couldn't really fully understand sort of what was happening at, at a much deeper sort of, you know, sociopolitical level. But I just remember seeing that movie and not only being sort of frightened, but it just stuck with me in the power of that movie. So, you know, again, I think she's definitely one of the greats. So for my news, I want to talk about a new report that came out from Georgetown University's Center on Education and the Workforce. And it's called Born to Win, School to Lose, Why Equally Talented Students don't get equal chances to be all they can be. And so broadly, this report is talking about how if you are born into poverty, if you are born into a low socioeconomic status, you are less likely to end up in a position of affluence, less likely to end up in a position of middle, upper or middle class life or high socioeconomic status than your counterparts who may not have done as well in school, but were themselves born into a higher socioeconomic status. Or it's also talking about how you're Educational experience is fundamentally entangled with your class status, right? And that, let's say you are someone who isn't doing well in school, your parents can invest resources into you from tutoring to more books to computer and technological programs and time, right? Part of what affluence gives you is time and space or gives you the tools to give your child the time and space that they need in order to bring their grades up, to bring their scores up in a way that is simply not the case for folks coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds because there's less social and cultural capital from which to pull. And so part of it is that parents don't even know where to go if their young person is struggling. And even if the young person is doing well, there are so many different factors facing the lives of those young people as they move throughout their academic journey. I think of students I taught who were brilliant, but also couldn't take advantage of the same 
extracurricular academic enrichment activities because they had to go home and take care of their younger brother or sister because their parents couldn't afford a babysitter or they couldn't participate in debate club or they couldn't participate in a range of academic activities or they couldn't get the additional support that they needed to build an even more robust sort of academic and intellectual foundation upon one that was already. This matters for students who are both successful already and not giving them the opportunity to become even more successful than they are and serves as something that's kind of prohibitive or serves as an impediment, like their low socioeconomic status and the sort of larger social and political context surrounding that serve as an impediment to their upward mobility. But also for students who may not be doing well, wealthier parents can invest resources into the lives of their students in ways that other parents simply cannot. And one key point that they talk about in the study that I thought was really interesting is that, for example, among the affluent, even a kindergartner with a test score in the bottom half has a 7 in 10 chance of reaching a high socioeconomic status among his or her peers as a young adult. But for similarly talented kids who are born into low socioeconomic conditions, the lack of material support, the lack of resources, the lack of social capital along the way makes it incredibly difficult to reach that same level of upward mobility economically. And so across racial and ethnic groups, a disadvantaged kindergartner coming from a low SES background with test scores that are in the top half has approximately a 3 in 10 chance of being in a high socioeconomic status by the time that they're 25. So just think about that, right? Like if you're a young person who is doing really well in school, theoretically, that would put you on a trajectory to continue to do well and then reach an educational and then professional bedrock upon which to build the rest of your life and have a, a solid socioeconomic status for you and your family. But we find that is simply not the case and that among affluent parents, even if their kindergarten has low test scores, they are still more likely to end up in high socioeconomic status. And again, that's because of generational wealth. That's because of resources they can invest into their students. And so the report goes on and on, and there's a lot of really fascinating information here, but I thought it was something worthy to bring to our attention. So this is even more evidence that meritocracy in America is a myth, that the idea that education is sort of the great equalizer is the way to go from low socioeconomic status to high socioeconomic status is just not borne out by the data. And you know what that means is that we need to be talking about solutions that go way beyond education, solutions that involve redistribution of wealth, because ultimately this is about the fact that folks who already have resources are able to transmit those privileges intergenerationally, regardless of the underlying merit or work ethic or any sort of characteristics of the people who are actually in those positions. And this report defines socioeconomic status in a way that is somewhat limited, uh, looking at household income, parents' educational attainment, and parents' what they call occupational prestige. So that's looking at whether the occupation is an occupation that tends to be accorded with social standing, power, or earnings ability. And that's sort of a interesting indicator to use because it doesn't actually take into account wealth, right? So when you take into account wealth, the situation gets even more dire, right? So not only do things look bad with regard to socioeconomic status as defined in this report, but if we're going to use wealth, then even folks who have similar levels of let's say, occupational prestige, so maybe you're a black lawyer compared to a white lawyer, maybe you have the same household income and educational attainment, but even under those circumstances, you're actually, if you take into account wealth, you could be in a vastly different economic status uh, as a black person than a white person um, with all three of those characteristics being held the same. You know, For example, a report from uh, Prosperity Now found that 
if the definition of middle class accounted for total wealth instead of income, then only black and Latino households with graduate degrees would be considered middle class compared to white households with a high school diploma or higher. So I would love to see an analysis like was done in this report, Clint, take into account wealth because that would produce findings that are probably even more dire with regard to the ability of folks, particularly black and brown folks who are performing well in school to actually be able to attain the same economic status as white folks who are not performing well in school, but come from a background of intergenerational wealth. I was struck by the findings that you both sort of know. I will say I was a little surprised about the lack of any conversation about the role of a teacher or teacher quality. It sort of references schools as these places that exist regardless of the quality of the people in them. And I was just surprised by that. So with that said, I do think the findings were interesting. There were a set of things that really surprised me. So the idea that wealthy families can spend five times as much on enrichment activities, and they define that as everything from books to tutoring. I thought that was interesting. Another thing that was interesting is that they note that over a quarter kids in the lowest socioeconomic status live in communities where like buildings need repair. Where only 4% of families in high-income communities live in neighborhoods where the buildings need repair. And I thought that was interesting. Like They referenced the studies that talk about the impact that feeling unsafe has on student achievement, which I think is interesting in this context. And then one of the things I've always been fascinated by is pre-K. And they talk about how only 40% of families who are in the lowest socioeconomic status, attend some sort of formal pre-K programming and the impact that that has. And they talk about this notion that a pre-K programming is actually one of the most cost-effective and leads to one of the most long-lasting positive effects. And like I think all of those things are really important. Again, I was sort of struck by the lack of conversation about teacher quality or staff quality or I don't know, like, what does it look like if we concentrate talent? And they do sort of reference that some schools have sort of beat the odds, but I can't help but, like, acknowledge the lack of a conversation about the talent. I think it'd be different, too, if they said that, like, one of the findings is that regardless of the quality of staff, these findings are true, then that would be fascinating to me. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not 
eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist, but at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. My news is about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. So this past week was the 74th anniversary of those bombings. These are the only two occasions in which nuclear weapons were used in the context of a war against another population. And there was an incredible thread, actually two threads, by a professor, Alex Wallerstein, who really helped me understand a lot that I didn't know about the history of these bombings and the decisions that were made tactically leading up to them. So just for a little bit of background, you know, my grandfather fought in World War II in the Pacific theater. And, you know, growing up, hearing stories about his service in the war, when talking about the bombings, he would use this frame that the bombings, while really bad, were necessary to end the war and ultimately saved more lives than were lost because otherwise there would have had to be an invasion of Japan and that would have cost a lot of lives on both sides. And that was sort of the narrative that he had and is actually a narrative that I've heard from a number of people over the years. And this thread actually goes into the details here and does a good job of debunking a lot of those assumptions. So first of all, just to level set, these bombings were you know, obviously a scale of destruction and death that has really been unparalleled over the course of human history. So between the two bombings, uh, an estimated 130,000 to 230,000 Japanese people were killed. And the bombings were spaced out by three days. So Hiroshima was bombed first, Nagasaki was bombed three days later. But what was interesting in reading through some of the historical record was, first of all, learning that you know, Nagasaki, the second city that was bombed, was actually not the original target. And it was bombed only because there was weather that made it difficult for the military to actually go after their original target, which was a series of military installations in a city called Kokura in Japan. So instead of bombing the military installations, they went towards Nagasaki, which wasn't even originally on the list of high-priority targets that the U.S. military had created. 
Moreover, when they ultimately dropped the bomb, they dropped it not where they had originally planned to drop it or even in the area of Nagasaki that military planners had identified as strategically important because of the presence of you know, military installations and factories, but instead they dropped it on an all-civilian area of Nagasaki, which they attribute to the weather. But again, this is something that they don't teach you in school, certainly. What was also fascinating about this was that this narrative that I was told, and I think many of us were told, around you know these bombings being to some degree necessary the narratives tended to focus on uh, the bombings being a strategy of forcing japan into an unconditional surrender therefore stopping the war and further loss of life but it turns out that first of all truman himself the president at the time didn't explicitly authorize the second bombing rather that was a decision that was made by lower level folks within the US military after the first bombing. Not only that, but the Japanese high command actually did not know of the Nagasaki bombing before they learned of the Hiroshima bombing. Apparently they had just received notice that Hiroshima was bombed at the time that the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. So it wasn't like there was a waiting period to figure out whether the first bombing was sufficient to get that surrender before the second bomb was dropped. And then finally, you know, what was also fascinating in reading through this was the impact that the bombing had on, first of all, President Truman's conception of the role of nuclear weapons in war. So specifically after this bombing, President Truman decided to keep control over nuclear weapons out of the hands of the Defense Department and instead to put them under civilian control through a new civilian agency, specifically because he was worried about the military using these bombs as if they were any other type of weapon in future wars. And then the last thing that was interesting in just reading through this was actually going through some of the documents estimating the death toll in Nagasaki, and I didn't know this, but they actually used records of schools and the number of school children as a way of estimating how many people had been killed. So there are military documents showing that, for example, a distance of uh, zero to a thousand feet of the blast, they had estimated the percentage of school children who were killed between a thousand and fifteen hundred feet. They had another estimate. And that was sort of how, because schools had been you know, documented, the number of kids uh, that went to those schools were documented in Japan, they actually used that as a way of estimating how many people in general were killed, as well as the impact that these bombs had. And those are sort of how they developed their estimates for the power and danger that these bombs would pose in future combat. So much of the way that I was taught as a child about World War II was, unsurprisingly, through a very sort of... Uh, U.S.-centric, jingoistic framework. And I remember it wasn't until, gosh, maybe like a few years ago that I learned how many Russians died in the war. Like it, so much of World War II was like almost made it feel as if it was like the U.S. versus Germany and Japan. And like there were some other, like Britain was there and Russia was there. But like, you know, it was really like U.S. mobilized handle business, it was all us, we're so great, the Great War saved all these lives. And I remember learning that 28 million Soviet people died in World War II. I learned that it was 14% of the entire Soviet population. Our deadliest war was the Civil War, in which around 700,000 people died. And those were mostly combatants. 
and generally, I just think it's such a helpful reminder to think about what this war meant or what any conflict means from a non-U.S. perspective and from the perspective of the people who ostensibly, you know, even in this context, ostensibly were our enemies in this war, um, if we want to frame it that way. But a reminder that these are people, right? That these are kids and families and so many of these people are not reflective necessarily of the military or government who portends to fight on their behalf. I think it's just so important to think about these things from the context of people who are not living within our borders. One of the things that this sort of brought up to me is that you shouldn't have to go to college to learn the truth about the biggest things in history. And I think about how, if not for Twitter, we would have never seen this thread that Sam brought to us by a professor. I also didn't know that there was ever a point in time in the country's history where the army was in control of any military weapons solely without civilian power. So one of the things the historian notes is that the bomb in Nagasaki actually led to Truman taking away the power from the military to decide when and where they were going to deploy bombs themselves. He is the person who enforced the president being the holder of the nuclear codes and the nuclear weapons. And in my mind, the way I've been taught about the premise of the American government was that it was civilian control of the army. Like, that was the whole idea. And then you learn that, like, it's not really civilian control of the army if the army can choose when and where they want to put nuclear bombs like that's sort of wild it also was a reminder too of how some of the biggest things in history are actually at the sway of natural forces so one of the things that you brought up sam and that the historian notes is that like part of the rationale for dropping the bomb so quickly and where they dropped it was literally because of weather like the weather precluded them from dropping it somewhere else and clint i hadn't even thought about like the sheer percentage of people killed until you said it and like You know, you wonder why people hate America for a host of reasons. It's like that is you're right that like even the Civil War wasn't, you know, 25 percent of the people in the country. So this was my reminder that I wish I didn't have to enroll in a college program to like get a this is actually history course taught by a historian who was an expert and would love to figure out how I can learn more outside of Twitter. So my news is an article by Mother Jones. It's about the Patriot Act warrants that is referencing a study that just came out of EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which we love. And what they note is that there was a special law passed right after 9-11 as a part of the Patriot Act, Section 213, that essentially expands the federal government's power to do what's known as sneak and peek warrants, where they can essentially just like go into your house, like a no-knock warrant almost at the federal level, so that they can go into your house if they think that doing something else, like giving you notice, might tip you off or you might destroy evidence. And what the EFF finds is that from 2001 to 2003, this is right after 9-11, is that about 4,000 requests were processed. And then within three years, that jumps to about 11,000 requests. So there's a huge jump in just this idea of sneak and peek warrants being used. Now, here's the kicker. Out of roughly 4,000 total requests for this warrant in between October 1st, 2009, in September 30th, 2010, 3,000 of them were for narcotics cases and only 37 were for terrorism cases, like 37 total. That's around 0.9%. And then since then, the EFF notes that the number just got worse. So the 2011 report showed that out of almost 7,000 requests, 5,000 were used for drugs and only 31 were used for terrorism cases in 2012. 
only about 0.6% of the requests dealt with terrorism. In 2013, 0.5% of the requests dealt with terrorism. So it was just like this real aha moment that like when the federal government asked to expand its power around terrorism, it is almost guaranteed that that expansion is going to be used for something that has nothing related to terrorism. And then it made me think of like, what would the government do if it wasn't prosecuting drug cases? That like the prosecution of drugs actually sustains so much of the federal government's law enforcement capacity. And that if you legalize drugs or decriminalize drugs, literally we would just undo the work of so much of policing, which is why like so many industries sort of rely on this language of like law and order. It's why police unions and other law enforcement unions do. It's why cities do that like they would actually lose so much apparatus if we didn't prosecute drugs in this way. I sort of anticipated that something like this might happen, but I had no idea the scale at which these warrants were being used and just how many of these were for drugs versus terrorism. I mean, as you said, Duray, it's less than 1% for terrorism, despite terrorism being its sort of stated purpose for the legislation. Specifically, this is the Patriot Act, which I think is one of those sort of signature pieces of legislation following 9-11. And this is sort of the long-term impact that we're seeing now of a lot of the panic in passing that legislation. But just seeing the growth in the number of sneak and peek warrants, the most recent data that we have access to is 2013. But just consider that in 2010, there were about 4,000 of these warrants. In 2011, there were about 6,700. In 2012, there were 10,183. In 2013, there were already 11,129. So we've gone over the space of four years, we've gone from about 4,000 all the way, more than doubled it, to 11,000. And it just makes me wonder how many we're at now, especially under this current administration. And I think it's all the more reason as we talk about the response, particularly to white supremacist terrorism, as we're debating this as a nation. I know there's been talk of a domestic terrorism bill that would allow the government to prosecute domestic terrorism in the same ways that it prosecutes international terrorism. But this is the kind of data that we need to be using to inform that conversation because you know, the unintended consequences, I think for many people, may be intended for some people who try to pass this legislation. More often than not, these types of law enforcement strategies tend to disproportionately impact people for drugs, impact people of color, communities of color in particular. It would be interesting to see a racial breakdown of the data, for example, but you know, we already know how the government engages in drug enforcement differently in black and brown communities. So all of these things have to be part of the conversation. And currently, you know, this is sort of debated as an abstract or theoretical, if it's even considered at all in the public conversation around the unintended consequences of this type of legislation. But this has to be front and center to inform the debate moving forward. It is difficult to outline the myriad of ways in which 9-11 fundamentally shifted every facet of American political, social, cultural, and economic life. We see it in immigration. We see the Department of Homeland Security, which didn't exist at all as an institution before 9-11. ICE did not exist at all before 9-11. The Patriot Act obviously did not exist before 9-11. And it's impossible to enumerate the amount of laws on the books and policies and norms and expectations that shifted as a result of this attack. And obviously it was you know, one of the most deadly attacks that's ever happened on American soil. But it is astonishing how so many of these things that were passed, like the, the Patriot Act was passed within weeks of September 11th happening, and it passed through Congress easily. And now, you know, we're almost 20 years out. And I think most Americans don't understand the extent to which the Patriot Act 
impacts every facet of their lives. I mean, at one example, there was a piece written a few years ago by a professor of education, and she was talking about this data that showed how the membership roles of Muslim student associations and Muslim student unions across the country since 9-11, how like they shrunk exponentially after 9-11 and after the Patriot Act passed. That's just something I never thought of. Like I never thought of Muslim student associations membership shrinking. And it makes sense when I think about it, right? Like I remember how frightened so many people were. People were being attacked if you looked Muslim to the extent that someone can or cannot look like a person who practices a religion, which is ridiculous, but it mostly meant attacking brown people, whether or not they were Muslim. But I think that is a single example of the, I don't even know if residue is the right word because it residue suggests something passive. And I think this is very active, but all of the sort of different tentacles and all the different spaces in which so much of this legislation tapped into in our society. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil Smells like anything you think could happen Probably will Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today Napa! Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Now my conversation with Jonathan Metzl, author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. I learned a lot in this conversation. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I'm excited to talk about your book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. But before we jump too deeply into the book, I wanted to know how you even got to this topic in the first place. Like, how did you get into this work as a professor? A psychiatrist, like how did you, what was the beginning for you? Sure, that's a great way to start. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who has spent a lot of my career studying issues of race and social justice and how they link to health and mental health. So I was already kind of primed to start a project like this. And then in about 2010, 2011, I was doing a project with some colleagues of mine in rural Tennessee. We were talking to people about the Affordable Care Act. And at that time, 
I wasn't thinking I was going to write a book about whiteness, but we were doing these focus groups with these men who were very often working class or very poor white men who really, really were quite sick. They were, you know, suffering from chronic illness or medical conditions. And I'll never forget, these were guys who really needed, you know, Medicaid expansion, healthcare. And we would ask them the question, how do you feel about healthcare reform? And the answers we got, one of the guys I start the book with is, gosh, this program might help me, but I don't want to sign up for a program that's going to help what the guy said was Mexicans and welfare queens. In other words, he was willing to sacrifice his own health care in order to block a program that he thought was going to help undeserving immigrants and minorities. And, you know, that was the kind of this aha moment where I was like, oh, my God, I learned as a doctor that self Preservation is the core human instinct, and here are people who are putting something else above their own seemed like medical well-being, the sense that basically being white and blocking immigrants and minorities was more important even than their own health. And so that became this jumping off point for a much bigger exploration of all the different ways in which this idea of what it means to be white or white identity were at odds with the well-being and the longevity of, you know, white Americans who could have benefited from programs like healthcare. And why do you call it racial resentment and not racism? Like, how did you get to the phrase racial resentment? Sure. You know, part of the issue is that what I track in the book, I'm also, I mean, whiteness is also part of the title, right? And I'm not talking about whiteness as a biological category. I'm talking about it as a political category. And it's the same thing with racial resentment, that really what I track the rise of in this book, and it was about eight years of research going all over the South and the Midwest, is the rise of politics that are based in, you know, this sense of white Americans being displaced, a privilege or a priority that we used to have, the sense of nostalgia that very often wasn't real, but it was real to them. And it led to these politics that were anti-government, anti-immigrant, pro-gun. And basically, I call it racial resentment because what was driving it across the board was this sense that, you know, other people, immigrants coming across the border, welfare queens, as this guy said it, are taking things that should be ours. This resentment led people into making decisions that were bad for them and ultimately bad for the country. Is there anything that you found around demographics that surprised you? I talked to a lot of different kinds of people, and there are also different topics. So the narrative of the book goes from Missouri to Tennessee to Kansas. And I talked to people about kind of hot-button GOP issues ranging from the Affordable Care Act to guns to education and tax cuts. And I ended up talking to some very working-class poor people, but also middle-income and upper-income people. And so, you know, what's surprising for me, and I hope people can see this in the excerpts that I have in the book, I put in people's voices almost verbatim to let people make up their own minds. Number one was that this ideology of whiteness under attack was something that ended up cutting across socioeconomic lines. A lot of times we would hear the same thing from well-to-do white Americans and poor white Americans. And it was weird from the well-to-do people because they were seemed to me like doing pretty well <laughs> when we talked to them. But they sent like, oh, people are coming to take away what is ours, but they would have driven up like in a you know Rolls Royce and they were wearing a suit and stuff like that. And so Part of the issue was how a lot of these narratives cut across socioeconomic demographics. I think that's part of it. But the other part is I talked to a lot of white women, particularly about schools. And so I did think the interesting point was that there were some white women who actually supported tax cuts to their own kids' schools because they feared that minority districts were taking away resources from their taxes. <laughs> but I also thought that white women gave a pretty interesting perspective. You know, a lot of white women basically said, yeah, I'm a conservative Trump supporter, but I'm not down with this. 
Is there anything that you saw in the conversations that was able to sway people from holding ideas that were rooted in resentment? Because it is so counterintuitive that people would be willing to sacrifice their own well-being or their children's well-being just to make sure that other people can't game the system, even if the gaming's not real. But did you find anything effective at countering those? I think about this a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot since the book came out, and I've been having a lot of conversations, too. And You know, first of all, I think it's important to note that their own medical self-interest was just one of the reasons that they identified as who they were, right? So a lot of people told me, yeah, I know that I'm getting hurt by my politics, but I care about a bigger thing, which is blocking abortion or building a wall or something like that. And so in that sense, you know, it wasn't like they were just losing all the time. They felt like they were winning. It just wasn't winning in a way that was benefiting them. It was winning in a way that was benefiting very wealthy people and corporations. But for them, they were basically saying they they weren't dumb, right? They were saying, I know what the Affordable Care Act does, but I'm blocking it because I care about these other things more. And so Point number one is I tried to take seriously like why people took their own stance and not try to say, you know, it was an education issue, which I don't think it was. Um, And I, I think that's part of it. But the other part is I've really come to believe in writing this book that there needs to be a kind of progressive movement from the conservative side also. In other words, I don't think the change is going to come when somebody like me floats my way down south and talks to people or they listen to NPR or something. It's much more that I think when conservative people start saying, yeah, I'm a red state Republican, but in exchange for my support, I think it's fair for me to ask for better health care or better schools or better roads. The minute that they start doing that, you know, so I guess the issue is you know, the money that is usually doing that for conservative people is going to fund tax cuts for rich people. And so the minute conservative working class people start asking for more in exchange for their support, I think that's where it's going to change. But that change is coming from within. It's not coming from me trying to talk anybody out of it. Before the book, you were a psychiatrist and you did a lot of work around gun violence. How does you being a gun violence expert play into the work you most recently did around whiteness? So I'm a psychiatrist and a sociologist, and I kind of live between both worlds. And the last book I did before this book was a book called The Protest Psychosis. And it was a story about kind of the emergence of the trope of the crazy, angry black man. The central story of that book is a story about black power protesters in Detroit who were protesting against the government and were locked into mental hospitals just because they were protesting and diagnosed with schizophrenia. And there was a little part of that book where I talked about how that played out in terms of guns as well. And I I specifically talked about what happened when Malcolm X, you know, basically said, hey, the Second Amendment applies to me. And the same thing for, you know, Huey Newton and Stokely Carmichael at a point and other people. And so part of the issue was what I was showing in that book was how when black men started to say, hey, I want some Second Amendment protection, I want to arm myself because they were right. The police were not protecting them that society defined them as crazy. And so that was a little part of the book. And then, you know, I started going on my friend Melissa Harris-Perry's show pretty regularly talking about masculinity and gun rights and the themes in relation to that book. And then as mass shootings started to happen, you know, there was this question of who really is a threat to society because so many of these mass shooters were white men, right? And so the progression for me was I started off in gun rights looking at black masculinity. I ended up then shifting into white masculinity, then mental illness. And it kind of primed me, I think, for this transition. Did you leave the book with hope? Like, did you leave the process of writing the book with hope? Or did you leave it with like a, 
were screwed or did you leave it with the like, whoo, this is an uphill battle? Like, what was it like in the end? What I've tried to do in this book was just make clear what the issues are, right? And it's not just the policy issues. You know, we have major, major existential questions about the kind of healthcare we want to provide for people, about how we want to allocate our resources. Do we want to continue to invest in rich people, which is what we're doing with the um, GOP tax bill? Do we want to have a society where there are guns everywhere? Or do we want to have a society where we can respect Second Amendment gun rights on one hand and have some reasonable laws that protect safety on the other? And so on one hand, we have a 2020 election coming up where the issues could not possibly be more clear. And the other issue is the race issues that I talk about really are at a boiling point as well. We need a new conversation about whiteness in America. That's not the Donald Trump conversation. It's a book about people standing up and saying, there's a better way to be white and this guy doesn't represent me. But here's a version of whiteness that's more generous and collaborative and invested in social justice. And so I think the issues are all right in front of us. And we have really a national decision in 2020. So I'm optimistic that we're going to choose the right thing, but I think we're under no illusion about the fact that there's a pretty strong headwind and, you know, the kind of work that it's going to take. Can you think about how we talk about gun control in ways that don't replicate the same disparities in enforcement that we saw around drugs? You know, like one of the worries that we have always had is that if gun control becomes about gun users, then the penalties might be so great that like we get all these really incredible wins on drugs and then people just get locked up for 40 years for having a gun in a neighborhood. How do we start to think about gun control in ways that don't replicate racist enforcement? Right. Well, you know, it's funny, the story I really tell, I mean, I deal with all of that extensively in my research, but the story I tell in the book is kind of the untold story of Just by a numbers game, most gun death in this country is gun suicide. And, you know, we have about 40,000 gun deaths a year in this country. And maybe two-thirds of that is gun suicide. And of that, about 90% is white men. So white men are the people who are dying the most of gun violence. It's self-inflicted. And so part of what I argue in the book is that we need better policies that actually look at enforcement of common sense gun solutions that actually target white men a lot more because they're the people who are dying, right? And so, you know, that, of course, goes up against everything the NRA says and everything the gun rights movement says. But it was kind of like, you know, when I started to crunch the data, I thought like, why, for example, why is the NRA blocking research on gun suicide prevention? Why is the NRA blocking policies that really would help their core constituents, white men? And so part of what I argue, in addition to, you know, exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, gun crimes become another way of incarcerating communities of color. But it was also notable for me, the absence of any kind of initiative that targeted white men, even when white men were dying. And so I'm not saying this to say, you know, white men are dying, damn it, Jim, or something like that. But I did think that if we brought whiteness into the conversation about gun laws and gun death prevention, that it might help level the playing field a little bit more. It is interesting because you're right about the narrative is not that two-thirds are suicides, you know? Who got us so far away from that narrative or, like, the truth? Yeah, the NRA has been blocking research for about 30 years and its friends in Congress— And so there's just a big, huge gaping hole in knowledge. Gun manufacturers have suicide prevention programs, but you can't mention a gun as being a risk factor for gun suicide, which seems to me hard to commit a gun suicide without a gun. And so there are all these ways in which common knowledge is being shaped by these very powerful forces that really are, you know, making this epidemic. Gun suicide has gone up 20% in the last decade. They're making it invisible to the detriment of their own supporters. 
That's sort of nuts. That's why I learn something new every time we have a conversation. Are you supporting anybody for president yet? Um, writing this book really did a number on me in terms of how I think about this. I will say I'm listening very closely and I'm listening in a different way than I probably would have otherwise. And so things that I probably would have supported as slogans before, like Medicare for all, for me are red flags in a way. It's just too easy to dismiss that point, in my personal opinion, because it sounds like Obamacare for all. I mean, look at what happened with the Affordable Care Act. The minute they coded it as the government is going to come into your life and do your health care, even though that wasn't true, it tapped into 200 years of history that they weren't ready to deal with, which was this 200-year history of government intervention. There's also a long history of just whose life is worthy of insurance You know, there's a history of only white people getting insured and black people had slave insurance and all these other kinds of things. And so it just, it was a softball for the other side without recognizing that they were saying something that was going to mobilize people against them. And I worry that in a general election, a slogan like that would be, again, I'm not against universal health care, but I just think that making it a litmus test for how you say it will make it way too easy for the other side to just basically do the same thing they did to Obamacare. Is there a way that you think we should talk about health care in a way that isn't an easy layup for the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain politicians now that are being very concrete. You know, I, I want to do job training in poor areas. I want to expand broadband to low-income communities. I want to do all these kind of things, things that actually people can understand as being beneficial to their lives, things like that that people can get down with on a more concrete level. That makes a lot of sense. Did you find that people on the coast felt differently than people in the middle of the country? Like that's a trope that we hear a lot, that the middle of the country is overlooked and feels very different than the coastal elite. Did you find that that was true? Well, I think the people on the coast are waking up to the fact that there is a middle of the country right now. And part of the reason I say that is because a lot of the policies that are happening now that everybody's shocked about, you know, more guns and why would we upend the Affordable Care Act? This has all been happening in the South for the past 10 years or 200 years. And so part of the issue is I just think that there's more of a recognition in the coasts of the kinds of tensions that are happening in middle America. And I think that's important, right? That's important coastally. On one hand, like I can just say, I'm in New York right now. New York has great gun laws for a city of its size. The amount of gun crime and density is shockingly low compared to a place like Tennessee, for example, where I live. And so I think that there are better policies on the coasts for a lot of these things. A lot of people on the coasts are on Obamacare, as another example. And so I just think people on the coast need to realize that those are the things that are being targeted right now by a lot of these policies because they are more beneficial on the coast. So I'm not trying to avoid the question. I think it's important that people recognize them. But I also think that, you know, what's being targeted are policies that are, for me, at least are working on the coasts. Can you also talk about, like, the book, Dying of Whiteness, seems to focus so much on social welfare programs a part of me worries a little bit that while we talk about social welfare programs like food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, those sort of things uh, as good things in public, that there's a silent subset of people that might be close to a majority that don't believe in the efficacy of them in general. Like I've been in rooms where people feel like, you know, giving things to people takes their dignity away. Like I wouldn't have believed that if somebody hadn't said that to me. Like I heard that and I was like, that is wild. Do you think that there's space to make a case for public welfare programs in a way that you think will resonate with a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, the Affordable Care Act is a great example. You know, the Affordable Care Act was not 
a government program. It was a collaboration between government regulatory entities and private healthcare insurance, right? And so it was a public-private partnership. And the minute they started saying, you know, Uncle Sam is in your room doing like the <laughs> – there were like crazy ads of Uncle Sam with a speculum, you know, doing your wife's exam and stuff like that. So the minute they just started calling it a government program, everybody forgot that it actually wasn't totally a government program. And so part of the issue is there is on one hand this stigma about government programs that has to do unavoidably with race and who's gaming the system. As you say, there also are – strong traditions of kind of, you know, wanting to make it on my own in American individualism. But then there's a lot of research now that shows like how effective <laughs> government programs are compared to like private industry programs in terms of addressing core issues. And so I think we have to get over it, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. As we come to an end, there are two questions I ask everybody. One is what do you say to people who are losing hope in this moment? There are a lot of people who have voted called, emailed, protested. They'd done all the things that they were told to do and the world hasn't changed in a way they thought it would. What do you say to those people? Well, we have a huge opportunity coming up in front of us. In 2016, a lot of people felt like they were blindsided. Right now, we know <laughs> we know the issues. <laughs> you know, we'll probably be blindsided by some other thing, but the decision has never been more clear. And so there actually right now is something you can do about it. And so I would wait to feel hopeless. I Right now, I would get engaged. I mean, the reason that Democrats lose elections is because of things that you can control, you know, voter registration, getting people out to the polls, that kind of thing. And so there's a way you can turn your hope into action right now in relation to a very concrete objective. And uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I started off in medical school and I liked being a doctor, but it just wasn't really for me getting at these issues of social justice and health equity and other factors. I felt like I needed to do something else with my life. And it's hard because when you're in a professional track, all the pressure in the world is telling you, oh, you put in all this time for medical school, you know, you might as well just stick it out for the rest of your life. And I got a lot of love and support from people I care about along the way. I left residency afterwards and went back to grad school. And I've pulled together this career that seemed probably counterintuitive. And now I get to mentor people who are trying to combine those same factors. And so Sometimes the non-traditional path can end up being the most meaningful one. Before we go, what is your advice to white people? So it is this interesting moment where white people seem to be engaged in issues of justice in ways that, at scale, they've not been before. What should we be telling white people in terms of how to make an impact in moments like this? Mm -hmm. I had a piece in Washington Post that basically argued that it's time to talk about what it means to be white in America. And part of what I was saying in that point is we haven't really developed a language. So you have to realize that, you know, we have 200 years of whiteness being invisible. <laughs> and so I urge people to define what whiteness means for them and to look out at representations of whiteness and ask if Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and other people are doing justice to what whiteness means to them. And the other, of course, is to learn from people who are really at the front of fighting for social justice and who have been talking about race. And so really learn from thinkers and scholars and activists of color about ways to be collaborative and recognize that you don't have all the answers and that really defining whiteness right now is not in a vacuum, that whiteness is a relational term. And so it has to be a conversation that's a horizontal conversation. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Can't wait for more people to read your book and can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.